All right, well, here we go. Man, we have been working our way through this series on the Holy Spirit. I feel like we've been doing what the title of the series is. We've just kind of been living in this zone of talking about the Holy Spirit. This is part 12, part 12. Um, So the plans are to finish this up in December and be done before Christmas. So after this Sunday, we've got three more left. So this will be in a 15-part series. Um, Here's what I'm gonna do this morning. I'm gonna take half an hour, maybe just a tick more, and we're gonna go quickly through eight of the fruit of the Spirit that are listed. Okay, last Sunday, my plan was to do four of them and then do the other four this Sunday. If you were here last Sunday, um, there were just other things going on. We had a sweet time, and so we just camped on love. Last Sunday really just ended up being about God's love. And in a lot of ways, the other eight that are here they're really rooted in love. It is God's love that produces joy. It's his love that brings peace. And so they really are expressions of the love of God in our life. So a couple quick things to set the table, and then we're just gonna go through these. I have a lot of scripture. Some of it I'm just gonna pass over quickly. Um, I would encourage you at some point in your life to really dig into these. It's an incredible, rich study. If you just take one word at a time, search through the Bible where it talks about joy and just let the scriptures about joy kind of pour into your heart and let God teach you about that. Do the same thing with the word peace. Um, Maybe at some point in our future, we'll do a series just on the fruit of the spirit. We could easily give a week to each of these. I'm just gonna try to give us a taste today of what each of these words mean and what that looks like in our life. Um, So really quickly, before I jump into it, um, this is called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. These are meant to all work together in unison. In fact, a lot of them, as we'll see, really are linked directly together. This fruit, without this one, it doesn't even quite work. They they really are all tied together. It's one fruit. Um, The fruit is a picture of who God is. It's It's a study of his character, it's also something he then wants us to enjoy because we're in a relationship with him. And so, so we eat the fruit in our own personal lives. And then ultimately, fruit contains the seed. It contains the gospel. It's meant to be, to be spread. We wanna spread God's truth, spread his love. And so the way the fruit works, it's who God is. It's something we taste and enjoy in our own lives. And then it's something that we give away. And none of that are we meant to do in our own strength. If, if you don't even hear any of the rest of what I'm gonna say, I hope you hear this. This is not a list of things for you to achieve by working really hard. This is a reality that God wants to pour into your life and out of your life because you are connected to him. You are abiding in him. And so this is something he offers. So here we go. Let's jump right into this. Number two on the list after love is joy. Um, This word kind of is is the Greek word here is kind of what you would already expect. It's rejoicing, it's gladness, it's joyfulness. It's, it's happiness, but it's richer than that. It's deeper than that because its roots are in love. In fact, the best picture of where joy comes from is, is the chapter in the Bible that this, this series title came from. John chapter 15 talks a lot about abiding. And the primary thing that Jesus says to do is to abide in his love. And then he says these words in John 15, 11. These things, all this stuff he's talking about in John 15, 
these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. It's as simple as that. The actual real joy that God offers, the joy that sustains us and is not based in circumstances and is not rooted in the ups and downs of the emotional roller coaster of this life, real abiding joy is simply rooted in the fact that God loves us and he wants that love to be real and tangible in our lives. When we are able to abide in his love, recognize the presence of his love and stay connected with him, it pours joy into us. Joy that lasts, that sustains, because it's rooted in him. And he says, my joy will be full in you. It's not just a little moment. It's not just a tiny glimpse. It's not just a momentary brief, hey, I had a really great day. I've got some joy today. That's temporary happiness. I experience that. I get little glimpses of temporary happiness. But his joy is an abiding joy because it's rooted in the fact that we are connected to him forever. We belong to him. So joy is directly tied to love. And this kind of love, or or sorry, this kind of joy, because it's rooted in his love, um, it sustains through any circumstance. So if, if in Hebrews chapter 12, for example, you can throw it up on the screen, Caleb, I'm not gonna read it, but in Hebrews 12, um, we've got that familiar passage that talks about Jesus enduring the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And we're, we're invited to run our race with endurance. The joy that God provides is regularly throughout the scripture linked to hope and endurance. See, if there is no joy of the Lord in our lives, then our endurance is trudging. Any, anybody ever experienced seasons of just enduring and trudging? My hand is up. I have for sure. It's hard. John, yeah, man. I sent John a little meme. It was like something about my Christmas wish list, just watch my twins. <laughs> I think I butchered it a little bit, but it was basically like, I don't have a wish list. Watch my twins. I was like, thinking of you, buddy. Um, right? Sometimes it's just enduring, man, holding on to survive. But we're not alone. And the joy that God brings is that he's with us in every season and he loves us. And so therefore, we can hold on to hope and we can endure because of his ever-present joy. The joy of the Lord is my what? If you need strength to endure, endure, you gotta latch on to him for the joy that only he brings. And that's why James could then write in James chapter one, verses two through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, part of why we can have joy in any circumstance is that God is using all of them. And he's producing something rich and wonderful and sustaining in every circumstance. The truth is like just the selfish version of Jake doesn't like this verse at all. I would rather this verse didn't exist. But God is up to something in the trials and circumstances of our life. And because he's present and because he's working, I can find joy in the midst of that. Last thing, the only way that we can experience that kind of joy is really simply, it's a deep realization of the gospel message. 
Jesus summed this up in one simple little story in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This might be familiar to to most of us, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. He is so delighted in this treasure that he has found that everything else can be lost, but he counts it joy because of this treasure that he's got. Now, I, I used to feel like when I viewed this passage, like we needed to have the right interpretation of this passage. And so there were seasons of my life where I believed that the treasure was us. Jesus was saying, I came and sold everything because you're my treasure. And so I found you and now it's my joy that you're mine because I gave my life for you. There were other seasons of my life where I believed, no, he's the treasure. Like he's the treasure that I find and I discover him. And when my eyes are finally open to him, man, there's incredible joy. He's worth everything. The truth is, it's both. And that's part of the power of Jesus. He had this way of speaking at multiple levels at the same time. The gospel message is, God loves us and we're his treasure. The gospel message is, he's an incredible treasure and I can love him back and he's mine. Listen, the best earthly example of real joy that I've found is in mutual loving relationships. I find joy in my relationship with my wife. She loves me and I love her. I've found a lot of joy in the presence of close friends because they just take me as I am. They'll even humor me and laugh at my stupid jokes. Like there's just, there's joy in that, that settled sense of you love me, I love you, we're good. We're gonna be all right. And so we can even find joy in hard seasons. So that's, that's how joy gets produced. It's, it's in the love of God. And then we get glimpses of that in our love with each other. All right, moving on, peace. The second one here mentioned is peace. And you know, it's interesting, like when we talk about peace, there's a lot of ways that we try to get it. There's a lot of ways we try to get it. Um, one of the primary ways, if we're not careful to get peace, in fact, there are whole ways of thinking, large ways of thinking in our world that a lot of people adhere to where we receive peace by having this like stoic indifference. I'm, I'm above the fray. And it's, it's really, it's either rooted in, in selfishness, like I just get wrapped up in my own life, or it's rooted in apathy, I'm apathetic about life. And so I find this fake or false version of peace that's not rooted in something real. That is not the peace Jesus is talking about. That is temporary, it's superficial, and it doesn't consider other people. Other forms of peace we try to arrange is just where I'm the one in charge and everyone else is aligned with what I want and my demands, and now I've got some peace because everybody... Everybody followed the rules. Now, we see this on massive scales, right? Like, like wars are fought to arrange peace, and whoever wins gets the peace. But we do that in our own homes. We, we have little mini wars of I'm going to get my way this afternoon. I'm going to get my way with the remote or what, whatever. But we arrange to get our little momentary peace in our little kingdom because I got it my way. That's not peace either. 
He's the, he's the prince of peace. That means peace comes when he gets to be on the throne. And so he brings peace into my life. Here's, here's what God's peace is. It's the peace that God gives is never to be identified with selfish unconcern. God's peace is independent of outside conditions and is the fruit of a real salvation in God. Let me read that one more time. God's peace is independent of outside conditions. It is the fruit of a real salvation with God. The reality is he wants us to have peace with our past. Not because the stuff I've done that I regret is okay. And not because the hard, hurtful things that have been done to me are okay. But because Jesus forgives and redeems. He forgives and he redeems. And because he does that, I can make peace with my past because my peace is found in him, my redeemer, my forgiver. I can have peace in the present because of his presence. I can have peace in this moment because he is near. And so he brings tangible, real peace right here today. And then, man, this is one that, if we could latch onto this, we don't have to worry about the future either. We have peace in the future. Not only because of the eternity and hope of heaven, yes, absolutely. Like, how bad can it really be on this earth if I have eternity with him? But I even mean, like, he's in my future. Like, I'm not in tomorrow yet, but he is. And we can lose so much energy, so much peace being anxious, trying to arrange for or figure out tomorrow or a month from now or six months from now. He's here with me in the present. I can entrust him with the future because he's the only one that can see it anyway. And I can believe that the same God that's present with me now will be present with me then and he's working all things to good. And so I find peace in the past, the present, and the future. I would encourage you if you ever feel like you're struggling with peace, start by just simply kind of asking yourself the question, hey, self, is my lack of peace because of just something going on in my present condition that I can't change and I'm just anxiously trying to change it right here and now? Am I in turmoil rehearsing some old past stuff that I can't change anyway? Or am I anxiously looking ahead to the future and worried about it? Just be honest with yourself. Have a little conversation. Identify where the lack of peace is coming from and then invite Jesus into that and watch how he can surprise you with peace that passes all understanding. I think it's interesting that he doesn't say in that passage, I'll help you have an understanding of peace. He just said, I want you to trust me that I can bring you some peace that doesn't even make sense, but it's available in me if you'll invite me into your right here and right now. All right, so there's a taste of peace. Okay, number three. We're not doing too bad on time. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be careful because we gotta get through these. All right, number three, patience. Now, sometimes this word is translated long-suffering or even forbearance, you know, depending on how old school you like your Bible translation to be. Um, so patience, long-suffering, forbearance. Now, here's something that's important to understand about this word. This word patience here actually pertains to dealing with people. 
I'm not saying there isn't a patience that can endure circumstances and trials. There is, but that's not this word. This word in this passage is about patience and directly dealing with your relationships with other people, being patient with people, not necessarily patient in your circumstances. Now, when it's used to describe God, so if we were to look through scripture and see where this word for patience is describing him in his relation towards us, it's almost always tied with mercy. God is patient with us because he is merciful towards us. He gives us fresh opportunities all the time to restart with him. He hangs in there through our hard, rocky seasons. And so with him, it's related to mercy. So what does this look like for us? Um, let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter four, verse one here. I therefore, this is Paul writing, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. Why are we patient with each other and bearing with one another in love? Because we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the fruit of the spirit that gives us the ability to have patience, the heart behind that is God's spirit, God's presence desires for us to have unity with each other. So I don't know if you realize this or not, but this whole series we're doing, it's not just about you experiencing the Holy Spirit. It's about us experiencing the presence of God in our midst. He placed us in a family. Uh, one of the best examples I can think of this is simply this. I, I'm married. And so me and my wife have entered into unity in our marriage relationship. What I have discovered as we have been married is that while we have unity in our commitment to each other, we don't always have unity in thought. We also don't have unity in mood. <laughs> you ever had that, right? One of you's in a good mood, one of you's in a bad mood. And then the person in the bad mood is really not thrilled with the person that's in the good mood. It's like, you need to come down here and get into my mood with me. Our, our lives don't necessarily always line up. Well, how do we get through that? Patience patience. You know why? Because you can't control people and you can't fix people. And so we hang in there with each other. We endure. We have patience with one another. We bear one another in love. He doesn't say embrace one another in love, enjoy one another in love. He says bear with one another in love. It can be difficult at times. Love is sacrificial. And so we learn to be patient with each other. Now, just to be clear, this is one example of this. Patience doesn't mean I'm the doormat for everybody in my life. You know, we can misrepresent or misunderstand portions of scripture and misread them. It doesn't mean I'm just everybody's doormat, okay? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, I find it interesting how Paul is writing to Timothy about how he, how he interacts with people. And he says, here's what you do. Preach the word, be be Bible-based, speak truth to each other. Be ready in season and out of season. Re reprove, rebuke, exhort. There's a few different words there, okay? Reprove, hey, let me teach you something you don't know. Let me correct you here. Rebuke, like that is off. You are, that is wrong. You are mishandling that. Exhort, that's more like encouragement, like hang in there in the midst of your hard season. 
and do all of that with complete patience and teaching. See, patience isn't just, I'm a doormat, run over me. It means I'm not giving up on you. I'm hanging in there with you. It's easy to write people off and bounce to the next relationship when this one gets hard. We're not supposed to do that. But we don't, we don't have to sit there in some weird codependent relationship where I just keep enabling somebody to beat me up all the time. I can speak truth in love. I can hang in there with people. I can, I can call them out when they're doing something wrong. I can also have some grace when they're in a hard season. I can speak encouragement into their life and hang in there with them. All right, so there's a taste of patience. Number four, kindness. Um, some translations will use the word gentleness here. They're, they're similar in some ways. This word kindness, I just wanna say this up front. Kindness and then goodness that we're getting to next, man, these two are like this. They go hand in hand. So let me talk a little bit about kindness and then we'll link them when I get to goodness. Kindness is like this, this mellow or passive goodness. It's just like a settledness. In fact, let me do, I wanna read this sentence to you very specifically because this was a description in one of the Greek dictionaries. It is the grace that pervades the whole nature, mellowing all that would be harsh. Anybody ever feel like you needed a little bit of mellowing of all that would be harsh in you? All right, that's the kindness of God. The translation goes on to say, thus wine is mellowed with age. It's a similar word that's used for the way just over time, wine will kind of mature and mellow with age. It's this sense of moral goodness, integrity. Um, it, even, it even is related to the word benign. Like you're, you're safe. You're not gonna hurt somebody. Kindness. It's, it's, it's more something you are. It's more internal. It's like a, a sense of being. And then the next where we're getting into goodness is action. All right? So one is kind of a settledness. It's just a part of your nature. I'm kind. But you could be kind and inactive. And that can become unkind. All right, and so that's why we need all of these together. So kindness is kind of just this sense of things are settled. Um, this word is used to describe God. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but in Titus, um, you can look at this later. It lists all these ways we used to live, just chaotic, frustrated, even angry lives. And then it says that it is the loving kindness of God that rescues us, washes us, renews us by his spirit. So it's, it's God's loving kindness that brings us into his grace and washes us. Man, when we're experiencing the love of God, we're actually experiencing the kindness of God. He has mellowed with age, if you will. Not that he was angry before, but you know. He's, he's just, he's settled, he's good, he's kind. He's generous towards us. That's kindness. All right, this, the second side of that same coin, goodness. So where kindness is kind of this way of being, we're just settled, mellow, kind, safe. Goodness is active. It's active good. It's benevolence. In fact, it's zealous. It's zealous about doing good, being good, stepping up and doing the right thing in a given situation. Goodness. Um, where it's different from kindness is this. It is character energized. 
So it's, if I'm, a, if I'm a kind person and that gets moving in the real world, goodness flows out and lands wherever I go. The problem with goodness is that um, because it's active, it's possible that in a sense of righteous indignation, our goodness can, be, can have an edge to it. It can be harsh. It can be misused. Like I see something wrong, I wanna do something right about it, but then before I know it, I've, I've stepped over the edge. I remember years ago, we were at summer camp and man, we just, we had these older kids that were picking on and kind of bullying some of the younger kids and I just had it. I was tired of it, took them out over by the little wiffle ball field and I sat them down on the bleachers and I mean, I told them what's up. And I was acting in goodness there were some things that I said where I was not acting in kindness by the end of that conversation. I actually had to go back and say, hey guys, my attitude was wrong, but what y'all are doing is wrong too, okay? This is, again, this is where we need the spirit of God to come and bring all this together because I can feel a sense of like, here's something that's not right and I need to do something about it and we should do something about it. But if I, if I do something about it without kindness, it's off. Um, so let me, let me give you an example of this. There's a couple of really good descriptions in Romans and in 2 Thessalonians you can check out. But because kindness and goodness were meant to work together, I'll give you a visual picture that Jesus called us to. In Matthew 10, verse 16, he's sending out his disciples to go make a difference and go minister to people from town to town. And he told them this, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's the picture. Be, be harmless and kind and gentle like a dove, but be active. Go out and make a difference. If we were looking at this in Jesus' life, this is when he went into the temple and he overturned the tables and drove out the money changers. Do you guys know that wasn't him flying off the handle? If you read the passage, he goes into the temple the day before and he observes everything. And then he goes out and prepares. He made a whip of cords and he got ready to go in and drive out the animals and overturn the tables and put a stop to it. It was measured, it was thoughtful, it was intentional. And it was in his passion to do what was right and good. And it was kindness for the people. They were being taken advantage of. People were in the temple overcharging for the things people needed to bring their temple sacrifice. And so in his kindness, he saw that as something that needed to be addressed. Those people needed to be helped. In his goodness, he stepped up and did something about it. Is this making sense? Kindness by itself is passive and ineffective. Goodness by itself can be harsh and hurtful. Working together, they are powerful. People's lives can be changed when they encounter genuinely kind people who care about the goodness of God being experienced by others. Let's have kindness and goodness. All right, number six, faithfulness. Um, this word is very much what it sounds like. It means fidelity. It's the character of someone that can be relied upon. I can rely on this person. I find myself regularly, if you, were, if you ever sit near me during worship, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm just constantly thankful that God is faithful. And I'll find myself in worship, like if there's ever a moment where these guys are like, hey, just talk to him for a minute. One of the things that almost always comes to my lips is, God, you're faithful. 
I'm so grateful I can just count on him. He's that solid rock on which I stand. Well, God wants us to become the kinds of people that can be counted upon, that can be relied upon. He wants to do that in us. That is a rare quality in our world. What can usually be counted on is that somebody else is gonna watch out for themselves. That's what can usually be counted on. But a faithful person is someone that you can count on them. They're steady, they're sure, they're faithful. Jesus tells this, this story of a shrewd manager who's been managing somebody's money and he finds out the manager's about to come back and he has not been using the money well and so he just kind of at the end starts throwing it together and making deals and just trying to do the best he can with the money. And when Jesus summarizes the story, he says this, and there, there's three principles in here about how we can be faithful people. He says this, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest with very little is also dishonest in much. In other words, we can start with what we've got. I can learn to be faithful with the little bit I've got. If you're a broke, single college kid, you can learn to be faithful with what God has given you. With your time, with your relationships, with the little bit of resources, you know, you're rubbing a couple pennies together, you can be faithful with those two pennies. All right, wherever we're at, we can be, learn to be faithful with little. Um, he goes on, verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, so now he's talking about material things. How do we can be faithful with material things? If you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? God has wonderful things. He wants to give us rich, wonderful things that go beyond anything material in this world. But he says, you're gonna learn how to be a good steward of some of the rich spiritual things that I wanna give you by learning how to deal with your physical, practical reality. Learn to be faithful with the tangible and then he'll teach us how to be faithful with the spiritual. I remember when I first started in ministry, which it feels like a lot, a lot like this now too with set up and tear down, but when I first started in ministry, um, I was volunteering my time. I was working in the youth department at Grace Chapel. They met in a school like this, but youth group was in a local rec center that we rented out on Wednesday nights. And so we'd use the gym and there was this small little like classroom and we'd set that up for kind of worship teaching small groups and then we'd hang out and do like activities and games in the gym. And so I remember at one point they were like, hey, we can't really pay you, but somebody donated this red Dodge minivan to the church so you can have that. <laughs> and then I took all the chairs out of it and I used it to haul around all the youth stuff on Wednesday nights. And so I drove as like a, from like 20 to 22 or 23, my ride was a red Dodge Caravan. I was a really cool youth leader. Um, <clears throat> but here's the deal, like just practically, a lot of my job was just like hauling that stuff around, setting it up, tearing it down, being ready for everybody to show up. And I learned something. I didn't even know I was learning this, but like for me to learn how to be faithful with the people I was pouring into, I was, I was being groomed and learning by being faithful with the practical things I was given. Would I take care of the stuff? Did I treat it like garbage? Did, did I go early and have it ready for everybody? And, and by managing, stewarding the practical, God was teaching me something. And then we learn how to then steward people, relationships, spiritual things God gives us. 
Not only do we do that with practical things, but the third, the third thing it teaches us, not just material stuff, verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? There's so many of us that can't wait to do our thing. But are we willing to, to serve and do somebody else's thing? Serve their vision, their ministry, their thing. It doesn't even have to, this doesn't just have to be in the context of like ministry life. I'm just talking real life stuff. Can you show up and be a servant and faithfully steward what somebody else has going on? Are you able to do that? And your job, for example, you might be doing a job right now that one day you'd like to own your own business doing that thing. But for right now, you're underneath somebody else's leadership. It's their job. It's their company. Well, can you serve and steward their vision? their company, their organization well and be faithful with that. If you can't be faithful with somebody else's, what this is saying is you're never gonna get your own. Now, these, this isn't meant necessarily just to convict us. These are actual practical things we can do with the help of the spirit and presence of God to be faithful people. I can learn to take the little I have and be faithful with it. Holy Spirit, what do I do with this today? I can learn how to steward the practical, tangible things God has given me. And I can learn to serve and help in other places in my life that are someone else's. At your job is one of the main places you can do that and come under and serve and steward that well and then see what, what may happen as you grow in faithfulness. All right, that's faithfulness. All right, we good for two more? Y'all doing all right? Man, the kids are doing awesome this morning. Y'all are doing great. Okay, gentleness. Uh, your Bible might say meekness, um, mildness, or forbearance, or another couple of words here. Gentleness uh, can be very similar to the word kindness. There's not a huge difference. Um, it's another one of those that's more inward. It's kind of an internal sense of settledness. Um, but there's two specific things um, that this word relates to. Um, this word gentleness, probably a better word for it is meekness. And often in the New Testament, it is translated being meek or having meekness. So for example, in Matthew 5, 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. One of the primary ways meekness plays out in our life is actually an attitude we have towards God. It's a sense of humility that accepts God's dealings with us. God, whatever it is you wanna do in my life, whatever you're up to right now, even if it seems hard or harsh to me, I'm accepting of it. Um, here's an example. It is the acceptance of God's dealing with us, considering his dealings with us as good because they enhance the closeness of our relationship with him. See, when I'm meek, I can take him as he is. I can take what he brings and trust him. And so meekness, gentleness, trust, they all kind of work together there in our relationship with him. Now, the way gentleness or meekness plays out in our relationships with each other, um, actually, I thought this was so cool. One of the commentators on this passage talked about how Aristotle unpacked this Greek word. And he said, he said this word for gentleness, it's a virtue between two extremes. Okay, so on the right-hand side, what it's not is uncontrolled or unjustified anger. But it's also not on the other side where we never become angry at all no matter what takes place around us. Gentleness finds the appropriate place in the middle. 
The, the best way to understand gentleness is this. Gentleness is not a weak person. In fact, I think one of the reasons maybe why guys don't ever aspire to be gentle is because we associate gentleness with weakness. It is not. Gentleness is restrained strength. In fact, the gentleness I most appreciate comes from somebody in my life who's powerful and strong. I used an example of one of my kids getting hurt last Sunday. But like when, when your kid who's small and little comes to you and something's wrong, their emotions, like they're heartbroken, physically they wounded themselves, they don't go looking for someone else their size to comfort them. They come looking for mom and dad. Now, they don't want dad to be like, it's all right, son, suck it up, toughen up, you know, pat him on the back really hard. They want that loving and strong embrace. Gentleness is the thing that both protects and fights for the ones we love. That's how it finds its place in the middle of not unrestrained anger, but also not having just a lack of anger. The scripture says, be angry and sin not. That means you can be angry and not sin. Is my anger frustration, annoyance, flying off the handle? That's not gentle. But sometimes the appropriate response is to step up and protect or defend the one I love. And so gentleness is basically strength under control. Um, let's see. I love this about Jesus. It's the gentleness of God that enables us to not have to scrap and claw our way through life. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's meek, he's gentle. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, that's not comforting if Jesus is weak and ineffectual. It's comforting because he's the powerful son of God who makes all things right and wars on our behalf. In fact, he's so strong that he came in meekness to lay down his life. Gentleness sacrifices itself for the one that it loves. It's not, hey, it, it feels good to be angry right now and I get out some aggression because I'm defending somebody. No, gentleness is self-sacrificing. I lay down my needs to comfort, care for, and protect those I love. Does that make sense? That's gentleness. All right, last one. Self-control. Self-control. Man, okay, yes, to some degree, this is just about learning to control our passions, our urges. Um, it means the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. But often we just think of self-control as not doing the wrong things you wanna do. This word is so much more than that. Self-control is not about stopping bad behavior. Self-control is actually about mastering yourself. So, so let me give you a visual example of this for a minute. Anybody in here ever watched something like American Ninja Warrior? Or what's the one on Netflix, the Beastmaster? We've been watching Beastmaster some. I watch that, and at times I'm looking at the screen, I'm going, how are they the same species as me? Like, I, I'm doing good if I can, like, get up off the couch without, like, stumbling. And, I mean, the way they're able to control their bodies, like, think about it. Like, they're leaping, they're grabbing stuff, they're using their legs. Like, they are in such control of their body. 
and they can do incredible things. That's self-control. We don't think of that as being self-controlled. That is biblical self-control. The Greek word that's at the root of this is kratos. Kratos. It means strength, power, and dominion. That's the root word of self-control. Strength, power, and dominion. It's used to describe God throughout the scripture. That, that word kratos is used in 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, Jude, and Revelation all places that are talking about all power belongs to him, all glory belongs to him, all dominion belongs to him. He is powerful. The word self-control is the word kratos with en in front of it. It means power that is, that is controlled. I've mastered it. In other words, I understand all the ways that I'm powerful. We're stronger than we realize. I understand the ways I'm powerful for good or ill. I realize the way, I, the way I've been created, the gifts, talents, and abilities I have, what it means to be a child of God. I understand it, and I've learned to master that for benefit. Power that's directed appropriately is incredible. We've, we've settled for this word just being about don't do bad things. Man, that's not motivating or encouraging at all. Self-control just sort of stops doing bad things because it's motivated to do something powerful, impactful, good. Power that's directed. That's what self-control is. It is that word that's used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, when we're called um, by Paul. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Then put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We put on his strength in order to accomplish all that he's called us to accomplish. At times, that's defeating my own passions and desires and selfishness. And at times, that's taking territory for his kingdom and making kingdom impact in the lives of others. I wanna finish all of this up by, by reading something that you found in Colossians chapter one. And we're gonna close this morning. Um, this idea of we are strengthened by his glorious might. It's that same word that we're about to read. But just watch how this, this explains the life he's inviting us into when his fruit is emanating out of us. Colossians 1 verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would know what he's calling us to. Verse 10, and so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, there's this thing that happens. We learn what he's calling us to. We begin to walk it out, which means fruit is, we are bearing fruit as we go. And the byproduct of bearing fruit, we learn more about him. We learn about him, we put it into practice, fruit is born, we learn more about him. And it's just this beautiful relationship that grows and snowballs, if you will. How do we do that? Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. You are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. Family, Jesus offers 
incredible, satisfying fruit that we are meant to enjoy and we are meant to give away so other people can taste how incredible our God is. Let's pray. God, we, we love you. We are grateful for you. Lord, thank you for all of this stuff that you are, that you are a powerful God who's in control and works on our behalf. Thank you that you are gentle towards us, that you are kind and good God. Thank you that you are patient with us. God, thank you that you are not only a God of joy and peace, but you offer joy and peace. And Lord, that it is rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for this fruit that comes from you and your presence. God, we need it. Lord, we need a taste of your love and your joy and your peace in our lives. God, the world around us needs this. Lord, help us to be people that abide in you. God, that we taste your goodness. And God, it, it begins more and more to flow out of us to touch the lives of other people who are hungry and in need of the reality of your goodness. God, we love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.